Section 2 of Chapter 23 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 23, Section 2. Summers was too wise to oppose himself directly to the strong current of popular feeling. With rare dexterity he took the tone, not of an advocate, but of a judge. The danger which seemed so terrible to many honest friends of liberty, he did not venture to pronounce altogether visionary, but he reminded his countrymen that a choice between dangers was sometimes all that was left to the wisest of mankind. No lawgiver had ever been able to devise a perfect and immortal form of government. That which, considered merely with reference to the internal polity of England, might be to a certain extent objectionable, might be absolutely essential to her rank among European powers and even to her independence. All that a statesman could do in such a case was to weigh inconveniences against each other, and carefully to observe which way the scale leaned. The evil of having regular soldiers, and the evil of not having them. Summers set forth and compared in a little treatise which was once widely renowned as the balancing letter, and which was admitted even by the malcontents to be an able and plausible composition. He well knew that mere names exercise a mighty influence on the public mind, that the most perfect tribunal which a legislator could construct would be unpopular if it were called the Star Chamber, that the most judicious tax which a financier could devise would excite murmurs if it were called the ship money, and that the words standing army then had to English ears a sound as unpleasing as either ship money or star chamber. He declared, therefore, that he abhorred the thought of a standing army. What he recommended was not a standing, but a temporary army an army of which Parliament would annually fix the number, an army for which Parliament would annually frame a military code, an army which would cease to exist as soon as either the Lords or the Commons should think that its services were not needed. From such an army, surely the danger to public liberty could not by wise men be thought serious. On the other hand, the danger to which the kingdom would be exposed if all the troops were disbanded was such as might well disturb the firmest mind. Suppose a war with the greatest power in Christendom were to break out suddenly and to find us without one battalion of regular infantry, without one squadron of regular cavalry, what disasters might we not reasonably apprehend? It was idle to say that a descent could not take place without ample notice, 
and that we should have time to raise and discipline a great force. An absolute prince, whose order, given in profound secrecy, were promptly obeyed at once by his captains on the Rhine and on the Scheld, and by his admirals in the Bay of Biscay and on the Mediterranean, might be ready to strike a blow long before we were prepared to parry it. We might be appalled by learning that ships from widely remote parts and troops from widely remote garrisons had assembled at a single point within sight of our coast. To trust to our fleet was to trust to the winds and the waves. The breeze which was favourable to the invader might prevent our men of war from standing out to sea. Only nine years ago this had actually happened. The Protestant wind, before which the Dutch armament had run full sail down the channel, had driven King James's navy back into the Thames. It must then be acknowledged to be not improbable that the enemy might land, and if he landed, what would he find? An open country, a rich country, provisions everywhere, not a river but which could be forded, no natural fastnesses such as protect the fertile plains of Italy, no artificial fastnesses such as at every step impede the progress of a conqueror in the Netherlands. Everything must then be staked on the steadiness of the militia, and it was pernicious flattery to represent the militia as equal to a conflict in the field with veterans whose whole life had been a preparation for the day of battle. The instances which it was the fashion to cite of the great achievements of soldiers taken from the threshing floor and the shop-board were fit only for a schoolboy's theme. Summers, who had studied ancient literature like a man, a rare thing in his time, said that those instances refuted the doctrine which they were meant to prove. He disposed of much idle declamation about the Lacedaemonians by saying, most concisely, correctly and happily, that the Lacedaemonian commonwealth really was a standing army which threatened all the rest of Greece. In fact, the Spartan had no calling except war. Of arts, sciences and letters, he was ignorant. The labour of the spade and of the loom, and the petty gains of trade, he contemptuously abandoned to men of a lower caste. His whole existence from childhood to old age was one long military training. Meanwhile, the Athenian, the Corinthian, the Argive, the Theban, gave his chief attention to his olive-yard or his vineyard, his warehouse or his workshop, and took up his shield and spear only for short terms and at long intervals. The difference, therefore, between a Lacedaemonian phalanx and any other phalanx was long as great as the difference between a regiment of the French household troops and a regiment of the London train bands. Lacedaemon consequently continued to be dominant in Greece till other states began to employ regular troops. 
Then her supremacy was at an end. She was great while she was a standing army among militias. She fell when she had to contend with other standing armies. The lesson which is really to be learned from her ascendancy and from her decline is this, that the occasional soldier is no match for the professional soldier. The same lesson Summers drew from the history of Rome, and every scholar who really understands that history will admit that he was in the right. The finest militia that ever existed was probably that of Italy in the third century before Christ. It might have been thought that seven or eight hundred thousand fighting men, who assuredly wanted neither natural courage nor public spirit, would have been able to protect their own hearths and altars against an invader. An invader came, bringing with him an army small and exhausted by a march over the snows of the Alps, but familiar with battles and sieges. At the head of this army he traversed the peninsula to and fro, gained a succession of victories against immense numerical odds, slaughtered the hardy youth of Latium like sheep by tens of thousands, encamped under the walls of Rome, continued during sixteen years to maintain himself in a hostile country, and was never dislodged till he had, by a cruel discipline, gradually taught his adversaries how to resist him. It was idle to repeat the names of great battles won in the Middle Ages by men who did not make war their chief calling. Those battles proved only that one militia might beat another, and not that a militia could beat a regular army. As idle was it to declaim about the camp at Tilbury, we had indeed reason to be proud of the spirit which all classes of Englishmen, gentlemen and yeomen, peasants and burgesses, had so signally displayed in the great crisis of 1588. But we had also reason to be thankful that, with all their spirit, they were not brought face to face with the Spanish battalions. Summers related an anecdote, well worthy to be remembered, which had been preserved by tradition in the noble house of de Vere. One of the most illustrious men of that house, a captain who had acquired much experience and much fame in the Netherlands, had, in the crisis of peril, been summoned back to England by Elizabeth, and rode with her through the endless ranks of shouting pikemen. She asked him what he thought of the army. It is, he said, a brave army. There was something in his tone or manner which showed that he meant more than his words expressed. The Queen insisted on his speaking out. Madam, he said, your Grace's army is brave indeed. I have not in the world the name of a coward, and yet I am the greatest coward here. All these fine fellows are praying that the enemy may land, and that there may be a battle. And I, who know that enemy, cannot think of such a battle without dismay. 
the duke of parma indeed would not have subjected our country but it is by no means improbable that if he had effected a landing the island would have been the theatre of a war greatly resembling that which hannibal waged in italy and that the invaders would not have been driven out till many cities had been sacked till many countries had been wasted and till multitudes of our stout-hearted rustics and artisans had perished in the carnage of days not less terrible than those of thrasimene and cannae while the pamphlets of trenchard and summers were in every hand the parliament met the words with which the king opened the session brought the great question to a speedy issue the circumstances he said of affairs abroad are such that i think myself obliged to tell you my opinion that for the present england cannot be safe without a land force and i hope we shall not give those that mean us ill the opportunity of effecting that under the notion of a peace which they could not bring to pass by war the speech was well received for that parliament was thoroughly well affected to the government the members had like the rest of the community been put into high good humour by the return of peace and the revival of trade they were indeed still under the influence of the feelings of the preceding day and they had still in their ears the thanksgiving sermons and thanksgiving anthems all the bonfires had hardly burned out and the row of lamps and candles had hardly been taken down many therefore who did not assent to all that the king had said joined in a loud hum of approbation when he concluded as soon as the commons had retired to their own chamber they resolved to present an address assuring his majesty that they would stand by him in peace as firmly as they had stood by him in war seymour who had during the autumn been going from shire to shire for the purpose of inflaming the country gentlemen against the ministry ventured to make some uncourtly remarks but he gave so much offence that he was hissed down and did not venture to demand a division the friends of the government were greatly elated by the proceedings of this day during the following week hopes were entertained that the parliament might be induced to vote a peace establishment of thirty thousand men but these hopes were delusive the hum with which william's speech had been received and the hiss which had drowned the voice of seymour had been misunderstood the commons were indeed warmly attached to the king's person and government and quick to resent any disrespectful mention of his name but the members who were disposed to let him have even half as many troops as he thought necessary were a minority on the tenth of december his speech was considered in a committee of the whole house and harley came forward as the chief of the opposition he did not like some hot-headed men among both the whigs and the tories contend that there ought to be no regular soldiers 
but he maintained that it was unnecessary to keep up, after the peace of Rizik, a larger force that had been kept up after the peace of Nimegen. He moved, therefore, that the military establishment should be reduced to what it had been in the year 1680. The ministers found that, on this occasion, neither their honest nor their dishonest supporters could be trusted, for in the minds of the most respectable men the prejudice against standing armies was of too long growth and too deep root to be at once removed, and those means by which the court might, at another time, have secured the help of venal politicians were, at that moment, of less avail than usual. The Triennial Act was beginning to produce its effects. A general election was at hand, every member who had constituents was desirous to please them, and it was certain that no member would please his constituents by voting for a standing army, and the resolution moved by Harvey was strongly supported by Howe, was carried, was reported to the House on the following day, and after a debate in which several orators made a great display of their knowledge of ancient and modern history, was confirmed by 185 votes to 148. In this debate, the fear and hatred with which many of the best friends of the government regarded Sunderland were unequivocally manifested. It is easy, such was the language of several members, it is easy to guess by whom that unhappy sentence was inserted in the speech from the throne. No person well acquainted with the disastrous and disgraceful history of the last two reigns can doubt who the minister is, who is now whispering evil counsel in the ear of a third master. The chamberlain, thus fiercely attacked, was very feebly defended. There was indeed in the House of Commons a small knot of his creatures, and they were men not destitute of a certain kind of ability, but their moral character was as bad as his. One of them was the late Secretary of the Treasury, Guy, who had been turned out of his place for corruption. Another was the late Speaker, Trevor, who had, from the chair, put the question whether he was or was not a rogue, and had been forced to pronounce that the eyes had it. A third was Charles Duncombe, long the greatest goldsmith of Lombard Street, and now one of the greatest landowners of the North Riding of Yorkshire. Possessed of a private fortune equal to that of any duke, he had not thought it beneath him to accept the place of cashier of the excise, and had perfectly understood how to make that place lucrative. But he had recently been ejected from office by Montague, who thought, with good reason, that he was not a man to be trusted. Such advocates as Trevor, Guy, and Duncombe could do little for Sunderland in debate. The statesmen of the Junto would do nothing for him. They had undoubtedly owed much to him. His influence, 
cooperating with their own great abilities and with the force of circumstances, had induced the king to commit the direction of the internal administration of the realm to a Whig cabinet. But the distrust which the old traitor and apostate inspired was not to be overcome. The ministers could not be sure that he was not, while smiling on them, whispering in confidential tones to them, pouring out, as it might seem, all his heart to them, really calumniating them in the closet, or suggesting to the opposition some ingenious mode of attacking them. They had recently been thwarted by him. They were bent on making Wharton a secretary of state, and had therefore looked forward with impatience to the retirement of Trumbull, who was indeed hardly equal to the duties of his great place. To their surprise and mortification they learned, on the eve of the meeting of Parliament, that Trumbull had suddenly resigned, and Vernon, the under-secretary, had been summoned to Kensington, and had returned thence with the seals. Vernon was a zealous Whig, and not personally unacceptable to the chiefs of his party, but the Lord Chancellor, the First Lord of the Treasury, and the First Lord of the Admiralty, might not unnaturally think it strange that a post of the highest importance should have been filled up in opposition to their known wishes, and with a haste and a secrecy which plainly showed that the King did not wish to be annoyed by their remonstrances. The Lord Chamberlain pretended that he had done all in his power to serve Wharton. But the Whig chiefs were not men to be duped by the professions of so notorious a liar. Montague bitterly described him as a fireship, dangerous at best, but on the whole most dangerous as a consort, and least dangerous when showing hostile colours. Smith, who was the most efficient of Montague's lieutenants, both in the Treasury and in the Parliament, cordially sympathised with his leader. Sunderland was therefore left undefended. His enemies became bolder and more vehement every day. Sir Thomas Dyke, member for Grinstead, and Lord Norris, son of the Earl of Abingdon, talked of moving an address requesting the King to banish for ever from the court and the council that evil adviser who had misled His Majesty's royal uncles, had betrayed the liberties of the people, and had abjured the Protestant religion. Sunderland had been uneasy from the first moment at which his name had been mentioned in the House of Commons. He was now in an agony of terror. The whole enigma of his life, an enigma of which many unsatisfactory and some absurd explanations have been propounded, is at once solved if we consider him as a man insatiably greedy of wealth and power, and yet nervously apprehensive of danger. He rushed with ravenous eagerness at every bait which was offered to his cupidity. But any ominous shadow, any threatening murmur, sufficed to stop him 
in his full career, and to make him change his course or bury himself in a hiding-place. He ought to have thought himself fortunate indeed, when after all the crimes which he had committed, he found himself again enjoying his picture-gallery and his woods at Althorpe, sitting in the House of Lords, admitted to the royal closet, pensioned from the privy purse, consulted about the most important affairs of state, but his ambition and avarice would not suffer him to rest till he held a high and lucrative office, till he was a regent of the kingdom. The consequence was, as might have been expected, a violent clamour, and that clamour he had not the spirit to face. End of section 2